If you follow financial markets, you've undoubtedly noticed that direct lending, a subset of private credit, has risen from relative obscurity to suddenly being a trendy allocation choice for many investors, arguably for good reason. But beyond the obvious attraction of the potential to earn an illiquidity premium relative to public markets and to do so with potentially less volatility along the way, investors are faced with an increasingly complex investment landscape to navigate, given the expanding opportunity set, a host of new entrants, and an ever-shifting macro backdrop. The reality is... Look, there are a lot of people operating in this asset class that haven't been through a cycle. And yes, while we are believers in the long-term structural growth case for direct lending, we do think there will be clear winners and losers along the way. That was Ian Fowler, co-head of Global Private Finance at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on the show, digging beneath the headlines to understand the real opportunities and risks in today's direct lending markets. All right, Ian Fowler, welcome back to Streaming Income. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. Yeah, excited to have you here. And I think I need to congratulate you up front here because uh, something very special has happened, and that is that after operating in the middle market lending space for some 30 years of your career, you can finally say that you are in a trendy asset class in that direct lending or private credit or middle market lending, whatever you want to refer to it at, is now the hot place to be. How does that feel after so long in this space? Well, it feels like you just hit me with a tsunami with that question. Yeah, so a lot of things go through my mind. I'll come back to the word trendy when I kind of wrap up my answer to this. Yeah, as I think about it, it's kind of surreal on one hand. I can remember being a uh, senior leader at GE Capital thinking, did I want to spend the rest of my career in this esoteric, finite asset class? And thankfully, I decided to, Mm -hmm. to stay in it. But, you know, when I sort of step back and think about it, you look at the asset class and the attractiveness has always been there, Mm -hmm. right? It was there. The world didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. It was, it was there for insurance company. It was, it was was there for finance companies. And so insurance finance companies, uh, FinCos were all doing it. They were all investing in this asset class and they saw the benefits and the attractiveness of the asset Mm -hmm. class, but it wasn't accessible to a lot of institutional investors outside of that. And, and so I think when you look again at some of the other trends, uh, the migration of public to private, which has happened on the equity mm-hmm. side and mm-hmm. the amount of private equity that's been raised and how strongly correlated we are to private equity, it's sort of a natural progression, sure. right? So all of that makes sense. And, you know, I did found a company that raised third party capital prior to the great financial crisis. But it was actually a great financial crisis that was the catalyst to really opening up this asset class. Because if you think about it, after that crisis, it was the search for yield. Mm-hmm. And, you know, BDCs were able to, that, that uh, group of investors really grew um, with that search to yield. Mm-hmm. And then you had the migration of all these balance sheet lenders to asset managers because 
the institutional investors were looking for that yield to improve the returns in their fixed income bucket. And so, yeah, you kind of step back and you're like, well, it makes sense. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. the only thing I'll say uh, to the point about uh, trendiness is um, this asset class has been around for a long time. Yeah. It's proven itself. Uh, the asset class itself is not trendy. It's just that now it's being accessible on a much wider basis yeah. than it's ever been. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's a, it's a, yeah. I mean, fundamentally, it hasn't changed. I can remember back probably eight nine years ago, uh, working with your team and and you know uh, working on some content that to get out to our investors at the time, educational stuff where we were explaining the basics of liquidity premiums and things like that, and that felt very still very niche and esoteric almost back at that stage. But now it, it, it's almost a little bit surreal to see turning on CNBC and Bloomberg every day hmm. and seeing people talking about private credit. It, True. I think at that time we were like, well, private credit, you don't talk about private credit no. on TV, right? No, it's no. And, and, and direct lending, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and, what, and what's great about that is Throughout the last 20 something years, whenever you talk to someone about this asset class, you had to explain, like, what is this yeah, asset yeah. class? What is it? Well, why aren't banks doing this? Mm -hmm. Right. So all that's kind of gone away. Now you're actually getting into specifics around the asset class and uh, track records and, and, and things like that. And so the conversations that you're having with investors are, to me, a, a lot more interesting because they're a lot more sophisticated mm -hmm. conversations. And mm -hmm. I'd much rather have a conversation with an investor that's very sophisticated and we're having discussions uh, about the asset class and performance and they're asking, you know, good, tough questions mm -hmm. than me having to do a one-on-one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. We've done one-on-ones before, folks. So if yeah. you're listening, we could yeah. probably dig it up out of the archives exactly. for you. But, uh, well, let's talk about um, the performance of the asset class. So, Direct lending has, I think, had a pretty strong year uh, thus far. And let's kind of define our terms. We're talking about loans that are made to middle market companies. This is kind of a subset of the overall private credit umbrella, which includes a, a you know, much broader set of asset classes that Bearings is involved in. But right now we're talking about direct lending, your area of expertise. And tell us a little bit about just how the markets performed this year. Maybe if anything has surprised you, that would be interesting to hear. Yeah, so let's let's start on the on the front end. Let's talk about the the origination side and LBO activity. And you know, not surprisingly, you know, the market's been slow this year. You know, with rates being elevated, companies being faced with, you know, initially in twenty two, we saw the continuing supply chain issues, not being able to keep up with with companies' demand, and so that created inflation. Then, of course, you had pent up consumption demand, which further increased inflation. That's how we've gotten into the position we are today with respect to inflation. And so for a lot of private equity firms, they have to be thinking about margin contraction in that environment. And then on top of that, the Fed's response to all that was increasing rates uh, dramatically, most dramatic and, you know, almost in, in, in history, I mm -hmm, think. Mm -hmm. So all of that together, you have to stand back and say, okay, what's that going to do to valuations? And do I really want to catch a falling knife if mm. I'm a private equity mm -hmm. firm in terms of going out there and buying? So not surprised that the market hasn't been extremely active in terms of new activity. So it has been rather slow in terms mm -hmm. of new activity. 
I think when good companies do come to market, it's a little bit of a feeding frenzy around them just because there's not a lot of supply. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of money on the sidelines that's trying to be put to work. So I, I think that's, again, not I'm not surprised by any of that, but I think what private equity has seen is that really valuations haven't really changed that dramatically. And so my expectation is that we'll continue to see lower than average deal flow this year, but, but it could certainly pick up in, in the back half of the year as you see the performance in companies dealing with the, with the rate increases. Now, on the portfolio side, I think the two key things is, one, when you're in this space, I mean, obviously, we all talk about asset selection. And if you've been disciplined and you have been good on the asset selection, you've picked companies with true fundamental value that have pricing power because they do have that fundamental value, they've been able to increase prices. Mm -hmm. And so what you've seen with companies like that is they've been able to deal with margin contraction initially from inflationary pressures, higher costs, you know, through the supply chain. And they've been able to put through price increases. And then as rates came through, they've been able to adjust their pricing again. And if they've been able to get away with that, then they've actually been able to stabilize margins. So if you pick the right companies, mm -hmm. they've been able to do that. Uh, the other thing is from a portfolio construction standpoint, if you were disciplined and then over lever the companies that you were investing in, then that also helps deal with the rising you know, rate issue. Mm -hmm. So if you had a portfolio where your average weighted leverage is around five, maybe five and a half at the top end, then you're able to kind of muddle through this. But if you're at six times high octane leverage, those companies are really having a tough time. So the thing that surprised me is that weighted average leverage in our portfolio has always been around five times, give or take, on either end of that. And we've been very disciplined in, in focusing on those companies that have true fundamental value and pricing power. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to put through price increases. Initially, you have the contraction in the margins, right, because costs go up. But then they put through the price increases. The price increases stick. All of a sudden, they, they are able to get back to where they were from a margin standpoint. And so what I'll say is I'm not like completely surprised, but it's good to see the resiliency of our portfolio in this environment. Yeah. Now, just going back to the origination side of things. So interesting to hear. I mean, uh, clearly there's been a, a, a big slowdown in LBO activity last couple of years you know, kind of uncertain macro environment, higher rates, all of that kind of playing a role there. And interesting to hear you, you know, describe that there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. It's been kind of chasing maybe a lower supply of deals. Now, my understanding is there's an, another dynamic part of that. And, and that's that basically the potential transactions that are embedded within your portfolio and how that can almost be a little bit of an insulation from some of these market forces. Have you kind of experienced that in this year? It's actually something that's really attractive about this asset class, and especially for those platforms that are mature platforms that have a large portfolio. If you're in that situation, you're not 100% uh, relying on uh, new deal activity to mm -hmm. put money to work. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, when you look at the environment that we're in, and I'm sure we'll get around to talking about, 
you know, the structure and pricing of deals today, you know, you're looking at asset class that's generating 10, 11% returns. And so, of course, all of us want to put as much money to work as we can, because this is going to be a great vintage. Mm. And so one way we've been able to do that, and it's a very effective way of doing it because it's actually less risk than funding new platforms, is supporting uh, portfolio growth. And the main investment thesis has been uh, for private equity firms is consolidating fragmented industries. And so that means doing add-on acquisitions. And so effectively what you're doing is you're, you're providing growth capital to your portfolio to help those companies become bigger, better, stronger, more diversified credits. Mm-hmm. And the companies that you know inside and right. out, they're, they're your best credits. And so to be able to do that in this environment is extremely attractive. I would say that historically, the average has been around in good markets where the LBO activity was in you know, a new deal activity mm-hmm. was pretty frothy. I would say that 30% of our uh, output in terms of gross origination was in new platforms. Uh, that number has been increasing mm-hmm. as the, the number of new LBO activity has declined. I think at the end of 2022 on an LTM basis, we were probably about 50, 50 mm-hmm. in terms of the mix between new gross origination and portfolio add-ons this year we'll, we'll be around 70% of our activity will mm. come from our portfolio. Yeah. Wow. Really significant. Yeah. And, and I imagine that that's to your point, that's kind of a, a big difference. If you are a manager who's been operating the asset class for a long time, has that established portfolio of companies as opposed to a new entrant where maybe you're a little bit more subject to put money to work in some of these deals that are potentially less attractive given market forces. Well, there's a lot of pressure on on those firms, right? To, mm. to put money out the door again, because the investors are saying, hey, this is a great time to invest. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Mm. You don't have that portfolio to rely on. So you are focus only on new deal activity. And, and again, you, you've got to be extremely careful. You know, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if we're going to have a recession. We've talked about what, you know, the potential of a recession, but the last thing you want to do is back up the truck right before a recession. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the pricing and the structures that you're seeing out there. I don't know if those differ based on a transaction that's part of uh, uh, a recent M&A deal or an add-on acquisition for a credit that's already in your portfolio. But kind of broadly speaking, as we sit here, you know, heading into the year end 2023, what are you seeing when it comes to pricing and structures in this space? Let's just break up the year into the first, you know, six months, and then we can talk about what we're seeing right now, because there, there has been some some drift. But in the first six months, when really volume was at its lowest in terms of new deal activity. We really saw a contraction in leverage, as you would expect. I mean, again, when you look at the interest rate increases, there's only so much leverage you can put on these companies, and these companies can only afford, have enough cash flow to cover so much in terms of their debt obligations. So that that's going to be a, a natural limitation right there. You know, So we saw leverage really dropping down into the you know, the four and a half, five times range, you know, from the six times range mm-hmm. uh, where the market was and even above in certain sectors. And and pricing really, you know, increased to as high as, you know, 650 basis points or so in terms of spreads. And, of course, documentation 
tightening, as you would expect in, in a market like this. So clearly everything was in the favor of the, of the lender side. And again, when you kind of look at where the markets are, that should be the case. I think what's happened is as, you know, there are new entrants coming to the market. There are more players out there. There is a feeding frenzy, I would say, when you have a good property that, that comes to the market. Mm-hmm. And so naturally it's, it is competitive and you're starting to see spreads come in a bit. So we've seen spreads, you know, come in, you know, call it 50 basis points, maybe 75 basis points from where they were. Leverage really hasn't changed that much. It's maybe gone up a bit, but again, you know, just given the cost of debt, there's only so far it can move in mm. terms of expanding on the leverage side. The key is really the definition around EBITDA and adjustments to, to EBITDA uh, and making sure that's tight enough that, that they have the cash flow there to basically cover their obligations. So we're seeing a little bit of tightening, but look, you know, rates have still been going, base rates have still been going up. So you're still looking at, you know, returns in the 10 to 11%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would just say the reality is it's very attractive, but that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. I mean, this asset class shouldn't be generating 10 to 11% mm-hmm. returns because mm-hmm. if it is, then equity has got to be way higher than, mm-hmm. I mean, the math just doesn't work. So yeah. we're going to see at some point all in yields contract. I yeah. mean, that's, that's just going to happen at some point. But even, even with a little tightening right now, on the spread side, you're not really looking at on a all in yield basis that that much difference mm-hmm. in terms of the total return for investors. So, you know, right now continues to be a great time. My expectation is that for the remainder of the year, and we are seeing a pickup in deal flow, and we are seeing a pickup in better quality deals, because again, if you kind of look at you know, rates increasing so dramatically in such a short period of time, a lot of buyers want to see the impact in the numbers before they actually, mm-hmm. you know, buy mm-hmm. that company. And so we're, we're seeing companies come to market that have been able to absorb the higher costs by increasing their pricing, like I said. And those are very attractive properties mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. a lot of PE shops. Um, and so those will come to market. And I think as, you know, valuations haven't really changed that much, I think there will be confidence that in the marketplace and we'll, we'll have a busier back half of the year. How busy it'll get, I don't know, but it'll, okay. it'll be busier than the first half. Okay. So potentially in a little bit of a sweet spot right now, just given the higher base rates, the still high credit spreads that you're able to achieve, there's still a decent amount of discipline in some of the documentation. I know I've heard you talk a little bit about the the attractiveness of of this vintage uh, right now. So it sounds like we're still kind of in that sweet spot. As you mentioned, you know, uh, there's a lot of implications of higher rates. So on one side, of course, higher rates feeds through to you know higher yield in the form of base rates. Great for investor to get that, help them meet their uh, return targets. Of course, it's a double-edged sword. And on the other side, you've got borrowers that have a higher debt servicing um, obligation. And this being a floating uh, rate asset class, that can become potentially cumbersome for some of these borrowers. So how are you thinking about the overall health of borrowers today? And I'm just kind of curious if you're expecting any imminent rise in defaults on the back of higher rates or anything else? Yeah, great question. So, 
I mean, we just went through our uh, portfolio review for the third quarter, and we saw from a portfolio basis an increase in gross profit margins. We saw an increase in EBITDA margins from the previous quarter, and we saw interest coverage flat. Hmm. And so what that tells me is, again, it goes back to my comment that these companies are managing their way through this environment. I would say a lot of the companies that, you know, that we discuss in the portfolio review, the management teams feel optimistic about the, the remainder of the year. Mm-hmm. That's great if that happens. But of course, we're not going to bank on that. But what we're seeing are these companies are adjusting to this higher rate environment and and the challenges that they've had. They've been able to put through price increases. The price increases have stuck. And so I think we have to expect that the higher rates are going to last longer than anticipated. Mm -hmm. And maybe we have another rate increase or two on the horizon. So I'm not expecting things to kind of fall off a cliff in terms of our portfolio. And I would think that as long as we always have the demand side of the equation there, right, the consumption side, Mm -hmm. then I think you can muddle your way through this. Now, you know, the question is, you know, on the consumer side, you can look at a lot of economic data out there and you can see, you know, issues, whether it's, you know, housing and mortgages or car payments and financing. Loans. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, you know, that, that, that so there, there's some real sure. issues there. Yeah. Now, from a portfolio perspective, we, we just don't like dealing with consumers mm-hmm. in our portfolio. So mm-hmm. we avoid industries like retail restaurants. Con- we don't like consumer product companies by, by nature. So, you know, I think if you are heavily exposed to consumers, I think you have to worry about the demand side because that can't go on forever. Mm-hmm. But certainly on, on, on the corporate side, if you're B2B, I think, again, I think there's a pathway here to muddling through. I also think that everyone's looking at the election next year mm-hmm. and sort of seeing this opportunity that who knows what happens after the election, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. no one's going to theoretically allow a recession right before election. <laughs> right. Uh, so I think this is kind of this Goldilocks time mm-hmm. right now to take advantage. And I think that, again, that's going to be beneficial on, on the deal flow going forward. And I think for these companies uh, right now, there's a pathway to muddle through this. I think the Fed is, at least from what I can read, is you know, sort of indicating a soft landing, which means, you know, I don't know when they start reducing rates. I think it's going to be later than Mm -hmm, sooner. mm -hmm. But if that's around the corner and they feel comfortable, we're going to avoid a recession, you know, maybe you get through this without any real issues. End result, to answer your question, yeah, there could be an increase in defaults. Mm -hmm. To me, that's that's not really the biggest issue out there. It's the loss given default. And, you know, if if you have a company that is struggling to meet uh, their, their payments, you know, the playbook is, you know, basically you get the private equity firm to kick in some equity, mm-hmm. you pick some of the interests, you get paid for picking, and you help that company get through whatever issues they're having. And as long as you have fundamentally a strong business with a management team that's doing all the right things, private equity that's supporting it, mm-hmm. and the lending group that's in alignment with all the other constituents, that company is going to get through yeah. whatever issues and you're going to avoid any kind of loss given default. That's, that's what I've seen in 30 years of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, 
another attraction, I guess, of the asset class relative to public markets. And we saw that through COVID where, you know, direct lenders had more flexibility to work with management teams and sponsors to amend terms and, you know, extend loans if needed uh, to help them get through periods of, you know, difficult time with that with, while avoiding a, a default. So it seems like you've got a little bit of that flexibility kind of baked into the structure of the asset class. So, so I guess it's that it's like you said, it's, um, it's the sector selection. And I know you and the team have historically shied away from a lot of cyclical or fad, or as you mentioned, consumer oriented businesses. So I think that's helpful context to understand that, you know, you may see some of those uh, defaults come through, probably inevitable depending on the direction the economy takes, but there's ways to be smart about managing that. And it seems like there's enough cushion in the um, spread you're earning today to, to probably make up for that. Okay. So let me ask you a little bit about the competitive environment because it's been just fascinating to watch. Um, we mentioned up front that, you know, historically we haven't seen a lot of discussion of this asset class on television. And now it seems like it's on the headline and Probably in the Wall Street Journal every day, there's there's an article and CNBC or Bloomberg every day. One of these, one of the listed managers is is talking about the asset class. So lots going on, a lot of new new entrants. I mean, there's so many headlines around this bank setting up this division, this new entrance, this you know traditional equity manager or something like that opening up a private credit division. I mean. It's uh, it's really something to see. So I'm curious, put yourself in the shoes of our clients, our investors, from their point of view, what does this all mean in terms of uh, how the competitive environment is shifting? What are the implications for them? Yeah, well, it makes their job harder, right, mm-hmm. as an investor, um, because now you've got so many different potential managers out there. Um, and... Quite frankly, unfortunately, we really haven't had a major dislocation in the market where it's easier for managers to show a distinction between performance having gone through a major dislocation. Mm-hmm. I mean, COVID was a speed bump. So, yeah. So, and, and I think the well, going back to your first question about trendy, I mean, you know, some of these platforms, you, you wonder if, if they're hobbyists that are just kind of jumping in and jumping out, they're trying to jump on the bandwagon here mm-hmm. because the asset class is growing so, you know, exponentially. And I think it's, I think we're still early stages of that, quite frankly. So it goes back to one of the things I've, I've tried to highlight in every conversation I've had with investors over the last, you know, certainly the last 10 years as I've been talking to institutional investors. And that is, you can underwrite the asset class, you can underwrite the manager, their track record and their strategy, but you have to underwrite the underlying platform and the strength of the platform, the, the diversification of, of it, where the capital is coming from, its ability to withstand and sustain uh, a dislocation. Uh, because if you were the perfect manager in the world with the perfect portfolio and you were dealing with a dislocation, if, if you're limited in your ability to act because of the platform you're in, that's going to impact the performance mm-hmm. ultimately. And so I, I think investors need to 
really drill down into the platform itself, the ability of that platform to compete, and they're going to have to go through that competitive analysis. We need a dislocation to really flush out a lot of players in the market. I think if you look at the M&A activity that's occurred today, it's been mainly platforms that are having difficulty raising third-party capital, looking for a a new home that can Mm -hmm. help them raise capital. Or it's a platform that is having some issues uh, within the portfolio and they don't have the ability, whether it's covering margin calls or you know, they need more equity or whatever it is to, to fix their own balance sheet, they, they need to find a new home. So I, those have been the kind of the M&A activities today that have occurred. And so that, that just goes to show you that if you look at the market today, we haven't gone through that full test yet to really sort out who should be in business and mm. who shouldn't. And that's, that's the challenge. Yeah, yeah. Curious what you're seeing in terms of trends from LPs, limited partners, in terms of their appetite for private credit. So we already mentioned several times, tons of headlines every day about, you know, more and more demand for private credit, We're, you know, direct lending specifically. Are you actually seeing that from, you know, I know you're, I, I like to jokingly refer to you as the international man of mystery because I never know which country you're in, but you're always. Sometimes I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> you're always, uh, you're always having uh, conversations with some of the largest limited partners in the world, meeting them where they are, hearing their concerns, talking to them about what they're really trying to do with this asset class. So what are you hearing from them? Well, first, so on that, mm-hmm. I mean, and this is this is obviously very cool. I mean, I, I, from my conversations with these investors, they are looking at this asset class now, like a formal core allocation of their portfolio, mm-hmm. which is which is great. That's the way mm-hmm. it should be. Not just a yield enhancement to fixed income, but its own separate allocation within mm-hmm. a within a portfolio. And and I think that is good for the long term growth of, of this asset class. And, and again, when, you, when we talk about some of these larger themes that are out there, you know, such as the migration of, you know, public to private and all the private equity capital that's been raised and continues to be raised. And that's, you know, a majority of the M&A activity in the world is coming from private equity. So, you know, all, all these tailwinds are, are great. And the fact that these investors are saying, yes, I, I like this asset class. I want to be in this asset class. And, you know, in the old days, it was, you know, we have two buckets. We got the fixed income bucket and we got the alternative bucket and you don't fit in either one. And you're trying to explain, but yeah, but it's a really good asset Mm -hmm. class and everything Mm -hmm. else. But they're going like it doesn't fit. Well, now they're saying it fits. So that that is really great to see. So I, I, I think, you know, that's really positive. I think the trend that I'm starting to see, which I think you can understand why this would occur is. Now a number of uh, sophisticated LPs are actually looking to co-invest directly in transactions. Mm-hmm. And you know, we see that on private equity side. You know, mm-hmm. initially if you go far enough back, you know, private equity was really the investors were just LPs in a fund. Mm-hmm. And then it was, okay, I want co-investments too. I want to access uh, transactions directly. Now, do they need to build out more of a private credit? or direct lending team within their own business to be able to assess that? or how's Well, that- I mean, that's where, you know, it, we'll have to see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of interest in co-investing. And again, I think that's great as long as they understand the asset class and that, you know, it is a liquid and, 
you know, there will have to be times when you're going to have to work through a situation and you may have to, you know, ultimately take the equity in a company. And, it, you know, some of these things can take a while mm -hmm. to, to fully, you know, realize recovery on these, on these transactions. And as a co-investor, you're, you're, you're really not in charge. You're kind of, you know, one derivative away, one step behind the actual lenders that are managing the, the credit. So, so we'll see how this plays out, but there definitely seems to be more and more interest from investors to invest in these deals directly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of ways that they're accessing the asset class, are you seeing any other trends there? I mean, there's different structures that are becoming more popular, like mm -hmm. the evergreen structure. I mean, that's been around for a couple of years as people try to figure that out and, and, uh, and have figured it out. And, you know, I think that's a, a structure that a lot of people find attractive. Again, it, as long as you understand the asset class and yes, you can get redemptions, but it's going to be limited and it's going to be, you know, under certain circumstances. And there's going to be a line of others that potentially at the same time. So all of that needs to be thought out. But from a structure standpoint, you know, I, I don't see any issues with that structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same underlying asset class, variety of ways to access it. So you've got obviously multiple types of funds. I know Bearings runs, uh, you know, a number of different strategies, global strategies, uh, North America, European strategies, um, BDCs. Evergreen structures, like you said, so lots of different structures built for different investors' needs, same underlying exposure to the same loans, right? Which again, if you take a step back, that's really cool, right? Because mm -hmm. it's it's uh, the asset class is developing to meet and be customized to mm -hmm. to you know investors' needs yeah. and and whatever they're looking for, trying to accommodate that. So all that's going to do is further the growth of the asset class. Yeah. All right. Well, let's finish up on get your forward-looking outlook here. So I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, yeah. All right. Let, let me uh, let me ask it to you this way then: uh, bull case and a bear case. So what what does a bull case look like in your mind today? Yeah. And what does a bear case look like? Take them in any order. Well, and what's the what's the duration we're talking here? Uh, let's say, why don't we say for this asset class, why don't we say uh, 24 months? 24 months. Yeah. What do you think it should be? Is that the wrong? No, no, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, you know, that's fine. Uh, that, wor uh, that works. So 24 months. So let me put it this way. I, I think I'll break it down. I think the, the remainder of this year bear case is, you know, the market kind of stays where it has been in terms of new deal activity. Again, that's not the end of the world. We've got a portfolio that's extremely active. And actually, one of the benefits of that type of environment is you don't have any runoff or, you know, much less runoff. So you're, you're not out there constantly trying to replace the deals that are running off because they've outgrown you or whatever. So I, I think a uh, bear case for the remainder of this year is that it just kind of stays where it is. Bull case is that the markets really open up. And I think even going into next year, I would continue with that as people look at the election and trying to get some things done before the election. Mm -hmm. uh, because you said 24 months, we're going after the election. That makes it a little more complicated. That, in terms, that might be too hard to yeah, prognosticate so, on. Yeah, that one, I, I mean, it's a jump ball. We still have a whole ball. election cycle to get through. Exactly. We don't even know who the candidates so are. That's right, a, so that's kind of yeah. a jump ball. But, yeah. I, but what I will say is on a long-term basis, mid and long-term basis, is that I still believe we're at a watershed moment where this asset class is really hitting an inflection point. Mm -hmm. And 
ultimately, at the end of the day, it's just going to keep growing dramatically as, I mean, there's still a lot of large investors that have minimal, if no exposure to this asset class. And, you know, this is a great time to be in this asset class. It's going to be a great vintage. And so, yeah, those those investors are really uh, focused on this. So that's picking up steam. And then I think as we, if we go through a dislocation, yeah, it might be a little muddy in the middle, but I think you'll have, you know, real winners come out of that. And I think the asset class will be, I think investors will look at the asset class and see how well it, it performed during that dislocation compared to other asset class and how, and that demonstration I think will bode well long term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's an exciting time to be in the asset class. I uh, appreciate you shedding some knowledge and some insight here and who would have thought it would be so exciting when you know <laughs> way back when at GE Capital and all those firms uh, over the 30 years who would have thought this esoteric part of the market would be so exciting I'm just so, glad I stuck with it <laughs> yeah well awesome well thank you Ian this is a pleasure as always and uh hope to get you back sometime soon absolutely thank you for having me Thanks for listening to episode number two of season nine of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.